and welcome to Social Work Spotlight, where I showcase different areas of the profession each episode. I'm your host, Yasmeen McKee-Wright, and today's guest is Lara. Originally from Ireland, Lara's interest in social work began with volunteering for the Dublin AIDS Helpline back in 1990, working with non-government organisations in an administrative role, training in welfare in the late 90s, and commencing work in the field at a women's refuge as a case manager. Working as a housing support officer in ACON, Lara started her studies in social work and graduated in 2010 from UNSW. In 2011, she started working part-time at Western Sydney Sexual Health Centre and is now the full-time team leader of social work at the centre. Thank you so much, Lara, for coming onto the podcast. It's wonderful being able to speak with you about the work that you're doing. No problem. So when did you start as a social worker and what led you to this profession? Well, it's actually 10 years since I started working as a social worker. It's literally my 10-year anniversary this month. So um, it's quite significant. I was always drawn to social justice. And even as a teenager, I sort of stood up for people, you know, I was always on the side of people who were ostracized. Just naturally, I can remember arguing with people about, you know, discrimination or racism. So it was always in me a little bit, but I didn't recognize it then, back then. And then as I got older, um, I was drawn to working in NGOs. So th- this was back in Ireland. So I grew up in Ireland. And again, it was sort of community based work. And also working in education. I did work for the HIV helpline back in Dublin, which I've kind of come full circle from that. So at the time, that's when HIV was very scary, and people were dying. And so that at the time, I just wanted to volunteer. So when I moved to Australia, I continued to work in NGOs. And then I finally decided I should move from admin, which is what I was doing, into welfare work. So I did welfare work for, I don't know, I think it was from 1999 till about 24, in between having children and moving overseas and coming back. Yeah, so I... Social work was, I think it's always been a part of me. I just didn't know what it was years ago. And mm-hmm. even now, a lot of people, as you would know, struggle to understand what social work means. But I think coming into sexual health was sort of the closing off of what I first started doing as a volunteer back in Dublin. I don't know if I was necessarily completely attracted to sexual health. It just was a natural flow. I used to work in ACON, which is a community organization, which supports LGBTIQ and now focuses a bit more on sexual health and other health issues for their communities. Yeah, and I think you were in the housing support program at ACON. What sort of issues would come up for you with that particular group of people? Well, often when we met with those people, so there was myself and two of the people on the team, when we met with people that were coming into the service, we were often the first point of contact. So they would disclose a lot of very important issues. It could be mental health, drug and alcohol, or any of those concerns that are high up there in needs. And even though we were housing officers, we tended to do a lot more than that. So case management and indirect counseling or accidental counseling. So. Again, that sort of all nurtured what I really wanted to do, which was to, you know, gain some more skills and be able to help people from their community and other people a bit more. That position no longer exists in ACON, which is a bit of a shame because they Mm. still have needs. I mean, the HIV has changed, but it still needs. However, they do have social workers at ACON, which they didn't have before. Mm -hmm. And what has created that shift was it a policy thing or a funding thing yeah that was funding at the time now I mean there's still they have moved out and diversified from just HIV to much broader 
So I think the funding then got drawn into the different pathways they've now pursued. So they've got an amazing transgender program and that kind of thing. So that wasn't around when I was first an ACON. Okay, so they've diversified a little bit and they've not necessarily gotten any more funding. They've just needed to make the existing funding stretch a little bit further. Yes, and and I suppose keep up with the times because HIV is no longer a life-threatening illness. So there's ageing in HIV that became a huge focus. And they moved into the other communities, not just men who identify as gay or MSM, but other people within those communities as well. So it's it's a lot broader, and I think it's better for it because it's a great organisation, but they've broadened their reach. Okay. And you've undertaken some more study recently. Can you tell me about that? Yes, I'm, I'm still undertaking it because I had a break during COVID pandemic because I work within sort of the infectious diseases branch of Westmead as well as sexual health. So we were on standby in case we were needed. So I sort of pulled out momentarily, but I'm back into it literally two weeks ago. So I'm doing a postgrad in psychology and I'm also trying because it's a little bit hard to navigate and you might already know about this, but licensed mental health social worker within the ASW but their setup is a little bit difficult to navigate for me so I'm trying to get my head around how to do it so but it's only 50 hours CPD and and supervision and case studies so it's very manageable so by by June of next year I would hope to be finished both of those. Okay it's funny you mentioned that because my last guest so just the last episode was with someone who assists people and mentors people who are trying to gain their accreditation for mental health social work so I'll have to put you in touch. <laughs> that would be good yes no I really want to do it because there's a need at work and I'm sort of unofficially do it anyway so I thought if I had the accreditation behind me then it, you know it allows me to see clients who very specialized needs at work I, I see them anyway but I can offer more mm-hmm. and is that your interest in undertaking psychology training is that you do a lot of that counseling and use a lot of those treatments or modalities as part of your work anyway yeah a high proportion of our work is counseling because the the clients that come to the clinic that I work in they're very diverse so when they come through and they see nurses and doctors and in their initial assessment for STI screening which is our focus they will come to me and the other two social workers if it's identified that there's mental health issues drug and alcohol homelessness they could be refugees there might be legal issues you name it really, we do it. So we, we see everyone who the, those other clinicians would deem need to see us. And we can see them long term, but we can certainly do crisis intervention and make sure that they've got strong referral pathways. People with HIV, we do case manage long term. So because they're coming regularly to the clinic and then other people who might identify as transgender or MSM, we would also do a lot of work with them whether it be counseling or casework but if they're a priority group which those categories i mentioned they do fit into the priority groups then we, we can see them a bit longer than we would just someone who comes in for an sti screen identifies they're depressed but they're in the heterosexual community we refer them out and do you have an opportunity to do much preventative health versus acute or crisis work yes we do so we do see quite a lot of young clients coming through. So we could say probably from the age of 13 to 25, we have people that young coming in up to 25. But in the younger age groups from 13 to 20, say that's a good time to provide education and, you know, discuss any issues they have around sexuality or identity and equip them a bit more. So I would hope that in those consults, counselling, advice or education sessions that social work provide that we allow them to learn how to manage their sex life and healthily and how to predominantly if it's a gay man or a man who's having sex with men or transgender male to female then we would be looking at preventing HIV 
as a, a very core part of our service. I'm in the Western suburbs and our community, there's higher sort of rates of HIV there. So it's a little bit hidden because the people that live in that in those suburbs are not um, maybe as educated as other people, not because they're from the Western suburbs, but because they're coming from all over the world and the levels of health literacy differ incredibly. So we have to kind of, you know, we have everyone from Indian, Chinese, Lebanese, white Australian, Aboriginal, not so many Aboriginal, but we do have some coming in. So it's very diverse and we have to kind of gear our levels of teaching, I suppose, to whoever's coming in the door. But there is a lot of preventative and we worry for the age groups who are very vulnerable, which tend to be somewhere in the range between 20 and 30 is quite a vulnerable age group for getting HIV and other STIs. Anyone can get it, but, you know, that age group tends to be a bit more vulnerable. So we try and zone in on those people and make sure that clinicians are referring them to social work so we can get into a bit more of a conversation with them around safe sex and knowledge so that they're equipped to go back out. Okay. Do you find then that the cultural differences or cultural issues affect someone's access to the service or perhaps their willingness to come forward to access? Yes, so both. So a lot of people from culturally diverse backgrounds are not aware that they can attend sexual health clinics without a Medicare card. And that's a huge thing because it means, and I'm so glad that we do that because that means we can see a lot of people who get off the plane or come over on a boat and and may have needs that are not being met. And often they find out accidentally and then they turn up to us. They might get referred through asylum seekers or somewhere else, but it's not very clear because um, people who come through are still surprised they don't have to pay. Like we provide, if someone's diagnosed with HIV and they're, they have found out they've got HIV through a screening program, they are allowed to access compassionate care through our clinic. So we access that medication through pharmaceutical companies. And a lot of people aren't aware of that, that that's a thing. But other than that, we, we can see anyone, they don't have to have Medicare, they can come in and use a pseudonym if they want. There are cultural barriers, which is one of the things you were sort of implying. Yes, so for example, African communities are very scared about HIV and not just HIV, but other sexually transmitted infections and being known to have them. Now, obviously we practice very strict confidentiality and ethically, you know, that would never happen, that that information would be passed on. But through 10 years working in my clinic, the African community have told me, many of the clients I see have said that they're very worried that someone else is going to find out that they're coming or that they'll gossip about them and are we going to share the information. So it is a huge barrier to even step over the door and come in. Some people have come in in disguises and or don't want it. They have to be taken into a room because they're very concerned or they don't want to see clinicians who are African. So I'm just using that community, but it happens across communities. I mean, this is not just African-based, but it can be a very big issue, and then we have to really work on the trust. Sometimes it takes years. I've had one Chinese lady who, every time she came to see me, she would say, oh, you're not going to tell anyone that I've got HIV, and I'd be like, obviously trying to reassure her and explain how we operate in Australia. And she was saying, but it's really important to me that nobody knows. And it took actually about two years. And then one day she finally came in and said, I get it now, Lara. <laughs> so I, I trust you in it too. But it, that was a long time. So, but then I'm not from the community. Yeah. So it's it, you have to put yourself in their place, really empathize and kind of try and understand what the health system's like in other countries and what it might be like in their community. So it's quite a challenge and health resource wise, we don't have everything translated into other languages either. Yeah, I guess that further points to the ongoing stigma or shame that's associated with just talking about sex in general, but also sexually transmitted diseases. So it's hard enough for someone who grew up here 
at times to talk about it. Yeah, definitely. It's not easy. I mean, the systems are not ideal, as you probably know, Yasmin, but they're not, they, they don't facilitate a lot of the work we try to do. And it's like putting your head off a wall when you really want to help someone and you're restricted by, for example, laws around refugees here in Australia and trying to tell someone, oh, you're not going to be able to get a visa, but you're trying to still help them with their sexual health needs. And, but you can't pretend that something's going to happen when it doesn't. And I, I always try and be transparent with clients because I don't see the point in trying to hide the reality from them, but it can be difficult because they're really, their hope is in this country. So even though our main focus is sexual health, there's a lot of other things going on in the background that often take over from the sexual health needs, I guess. Absolutely. It's just one aspect of their lives. You mentioned COVID impacting on the work that you do. How has COVID affected the people that you support in terms of, they're probably terrified anyway, just with contact and sexual relationships and some who might be pregnant and how that all works within a pandemic? Look, it's it's been really hard. So there's different cohorts who come to the clinic that it's affected in different ways. And I, I knew that it would take a bit of time to sort of come to light. So in the beginning, we just restricted our services like everyone else has, you know, tried to go to telehealth more. And we had less people coming to the clinic. There was a lot of education done through different services. So places like ACON, places like SWAP, which is the Sex Workers Outreach Project, in terms of how they would operate their work practices in COVID. And refugees again there was a lot of work done on that there's an organization called scan which is sort of it's a peer-based group and we, we do advocacy as well but it's sexual health and counseling and psychologists who come together they're all based in sexual health clinics and we try and advocate and try and put together resources and work together as a group but it was a bit of a struggle because the government was just introducing services slowly and perhaps too slowly for some people so that was very hard because we could say oh we can support you in this way but we can't in another way and sex workers the group that I mentioned because their work is one-on-one and unfortunately a lot of sex workers they're forced into work, not in the sense that a lot of the people that we see are students who are really struggling to keep their head above water and they're sex working to earn money. That source of income was taken away from them for a while. I mean, it's all sort of gone back to normal now, but there was a period of time when they couldn't work and the brothels closed down and people were trying to be resourceful, but it really impacted on a lot of our clients. And it manifested as basically being financially struggling, like in a big way, not being able to pay rent, food. So not not just, you know, the luxuries of life, but trying to survive. Now, Swap were amazing. They came up with lots of resources. They raised money for them. They put together, they've got a dashboard, which is probably still up there on their website, which has got all this information. So that was great. But like, I've got a particular client who's, not a resident of Australia who's a student and she wasn't able to get work so she had to drop out of her studies if you drop out of your studies you lose your visa she's in a domestic violence situation she came through the clinic because she was sexually assaulted so her life is really traumatic like she's had a lot of trauma and the resources available are very difficult so she's suicidal now and you know really depressed and this is sort of the fallout from COVID so even though there was issues to begin with it's exacerbated and magnified issues for people made it worse and it's it's actually as a social worker yourself you would know like with the resources available for certain types of groups but there isn't many or <laughs> they just fall in the hole and trying to get something is virtually impossible. Western suburbs isn't that great either for supportive services. So I think in the city, it's a little bit better. But 
for us, we don't have, considering we've got such a diverse group of people, we don't have access to much. Yeah, so you've got a lot of people who, it sounds like, struggle to engage with mainstream health services in the first place, and then thankfully being able to access your services, but that might mean that you're doing things that you wouldn't normally do or supporting them with things that you wouldn't normally how do you manage those boundaries and making sure that you're still able to look after yourself within that? I think I'm pretty good at boundaries. I mean, the rest of my team are also quite good at boundaries. I mean, we're very supportive of each other. So in terms of trying to work out the clients we can see and manage and provide care for, it's very much a team effort. So I think the the three of us would come together and discuss particularly difficult clients. The actual multidisciplinary team I'm in is also very supportive. So the doctors, nurses, admin, everyone puts their two cents in it. And that really helps because having such a supportive environment means that you can then support those clients who have really difficult cases a bit more. There is autonomy in the sense that we can, there are priority groups that would be the people we should be seeing. However, for example, some of these clients, they might be on a waiting list for sexual assault service, for example, and we're not just going to say, see you later. We will try and provide what we can in the time frame leading up to when they get accepted onto the waiting list or start counselling, for example, but just clarify with them that we're not counsellors per se and that we can't possibly provide the level of care they need but sometimes we're their only option. So those people who don't have Medicare and things like that or no money, they will keep coming back to the clinic. But we would never say to someone, you have to go now and that's it. I mean, if they have money and they've got a job, they're an Australian citizen and they're reasonably managing okay financially and mentally, then we would say, okay, this is, you know, you need to find a psychologist, get a mental health plan, that sort of thing. But... It's a very specialized, like the the area of sexual health is very interesting because your focus is sexual health. However, it's so much more than that because it just covers everything. It, it's sort of the, it's like a tree. The branches all come out from it and then we've got to pick the branch that we need to focus on. So they might be coming in because they've got chlamydia, but then it turns out no, I'm in this really awful domestic violence situation. How can you help me? I'm a refugee. I don't have Medicare. I can't access these services. I don't work. I've had some people who've told me horrifyingly to me because we live in a privileged society that, or most of us do, that they were living on a pot of soup for one month in a family of three. And I mean, this is an actual story that I heard not that long ago, about a year and a half ago. And I couldn't believe, like, this client is a lovely woman. I was horrified. She said, it's fine. And I'm thinking inside, it's not fine. This is not fine. So those kind of things, we get a lot of trauma coming into the clinic. Yeah, and I guess you've created this safe environment where they feel as though they can discuss these things with you. So they might come to you for something, as you suggested, and then bring up other things because they feel safe. Yeah, I think so. I mean, in terms of keeping going ourselves, we have regular supervision, but I think it's more the ad hoc discussions, conversations, the team meetings that help to go through all that. We also have regular meetings about people with HIV who are complex. So the whole team will be in on that and give advice or... We, we make a plan, that kind of thing. But I, I think it's the informal support really that helps us to manage it. I don't tend to take things home. I'm sort of, I'm quite resilient, I think, luckily, but I don't, I don't think you can be a social worker really if you're going to take it home because mm-hmm. it would drive you mad. I mean, there's the odd client I will take home and that's not good. But sometimes, as you know, if they hit on a vulnerable spot within you as a person, then you tend to think about them and but I I always think we try and do what we can and we most of us are really passionate about our job and really are in it for the right reasons 
And so you know you're doing your best and even one small thing is going to help get someone on the right path in terms of better health for them or you know get them into a safer place or protect them from getting HIV or whatever it is. But you only need one small thing. So mm-hmm. I don't take it home. Yeah, it seems really clear from what you've said about the team the importance of working closely and collaboratively with other disciplines. And I would suggest that also extends even to the the frontline staff. So your reception and people who they first come in contact with and having them feel as though they're welcome in that space. Yeah, definitely. We do have, well, I mean, it's not a very big clinic, but we've got a small admin team at the front. And obviously without them, we'd all fall apart because they don't necessarily vet people who are coming in, but they will ring us and say there's a distressed client or so-and-so is here and they want to see you and and we can't see them because we're mid-session. They actually have to do a lot of placating and and reassuring clients that, because many clients who are in distress will think that we can sort of just come out of the room and see them. And I wish we could, but it doesn't always happen that way. So they're actually key to making sure that the workspace works properly so that we're seeing clients when we should that they're booked in on time or we can call them back or they wait sometimes if there is a extremely distressed client who's expressing suicidal thoughts and they're usually with the triage nurse at this point but then I do we have had times when we've had to say to regular clients I'm sorry there's an emergency we need to our clients are amazing, but they're very understanding. I mean, there's the odd one who isn't understanding, but mm-hmm. I quite enjoy that challenge. So I, that's why I'm doing my licensed mental health because I want to be better equipped to handle difficult situations. But yeah, I think once you find that connection with someone, it doesn't matter what's going on for them. You, you just need to get past the sort of assumptions about me as a social worker or how, how do you connect with this person? So I think the admin are sort of the in-between connections. So they connect that person to us before they even get across the door or through the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what would you say is your favourite part about your job? Oh, I've been there for 10 years and it still surprises me the things I hear, um, some of which were are highly amusing and some of which are terrible. But... It's very diverse work, so I enjoy that. I like a busy atmosphere, and I'm not someone who... I'm not policy-driven, and it's not my thing. I like direct clinical work, and there's a lot of it, so there's no shortage of that. I tend to get involved, as do the other social workers, in a lot of things that maybe other social workers might not if they're in a different sort of role. But, for example, because of where autonomous within our role we can go to court with clients we can go to housing we can go to Centrelink I've been to every court you can imagine I've been to divorce criminal civil court immigration tenancy all of them (laughs) and I love that it's very interesting and challenging and I think one of my favorite parts of my role is advocacy and because because I'm driven by that social justice that I mentioned earlier, that is a big thing for me. I'm not interested in organisations saying to me, no, we can't do that, or they don't really read the application for whatever it might be, or they say, no, we're not taking that person. But I'm the person that will go, I'm challenging that, and I think I end up having smoke coming out my ears because I just feel strongly about the... I hate lack of justice. And I mean, I I had an African client once who went into a bank and he's got HIV and he's, you know, he's got some other disabilities. But when he went up to the counter, the person said, oh, I don't know how we can help you sort of people. And I was just horrified. I was like, what do you mean? But he's highly educated, this client. So he gave them what for. (laughs) Not everybody can. And I've gone in with other clients where I've had to go up to the counter and say, what do you mean you're not going to help this person? What are you talking about? Yeah, no, advocacy would be a big driving force for me. And for anyone who comes into the clinic, whatever position they're in, 
most of people come in and they're very vulnerable they're embarrassed if they're not if they've never been to a sexual health clinic they feel like everyone's looking at them and they know why they're there and they're horrified that they're there many of them think of themselves as being dirty these are words that are used by clients not me i'm dirty um, i'm ashamed i don't know why i did that so that's the other part that i like about my work is being able to normalize sexual health and a sexual life and say everyone has sex reassure them that it's normal and if you get an sti it's really no different than getting another sort of infection and it's just that it's stigmatized through various different mediums and i really like that part of the work by the time they come through the amazing staff that we have the nurses doctors front desk whoever it is, and they come to me, we might be the last people to see them, but by the time they leave, I'm hoping that most of them feel comfortable or a degree of comfort that it's okay. Nobody's looking at me or judging me. And I feel like I understand a bit more about what's happening to me, whatever it might be. So that's a very rewarding part of the job because it, is, it isn't fun going to a sexual health clinic. Nobody wants to go in there. Unless they're regular and then they get used to it. But even some of them don't want to come in, if, even if they're regular. So, Do you have the capacity to see people outside of the clinic? So if they're just completely averse to coming into the clinic in the first place? Not unless they're registered clients. Saying that there has been a couple of times when someone's not mobile or is a complex client, complex being there's loads of different issues and there might be an STI as well. I've mentioned HIV a lot, but you know we also manage people with hepatitis and syphilis too. And syphilis can be problematic for people if it's um, got into their brain and that kind of thing. So we, we do that as well. But if, if clients are immobile or can't attend the clinic, we will go out and visit them, but we're not a community outreach team as such some of the other areas within sydney have outreach teams but we don't and i'm working on that because i really want one but that i can't believe we don't have one because we really need it but we do work with bobby goldsmith and adapts which are both services that come to the area and provide some outreach so we try and do complex case management with them that would be primarily focused on people living with HIV, hepatitis B and syphilis. That wouldn't be so much of a thing, but we do. I don't think I could ever say we don't do something because we try and adapt to the situation and do the best we can. I mean, the capacity isn't high enough with three of us. Two of us are full-time, the other social workers part-time, but we're always booked out. I mean, social workers are not always booked out, but we try and allow some free appointments for walk across the corridor kind of thing. So yeah, the capacity to go out and visit clients and community is a bit limited. Yeah, but I think something we do so well is advocate for people. And I think in your role, you'd have to have a really good understanding of the systems in order to tailor your argument or your report to the correct audience. So it's kind of picking your battle. Yeah. It's true. I'm curious to know, actually, you mentioned you've worked in the HIV setting in Ireland. Is there much difference between the two countries in terms of policy and how the services themselves are run? Well, that that was many years ago. So that was in the 1990s. So it was quite different back then. I think then they had, it was just the helpline. So they were just answering. They had a team of trained volunteers, me being one, and then they had um you know the manager of that service that was just providing information about how to access medicine and what to do but i think at that time they didn't have anything um and ireland was always very behind but they caught up and then started to progress as you know you know they brought in same-sex marriage and all of that before australia and before other countries which was very surprising to me because they're catholic and predominantly were catholic Nowadays, they have HIV clinics or sexual health clinics like here. So I have had one client who moved back to Ireland and we linked him up with a service back there and he said they were really great. So that kind of 
says to me that they would provide similar sort of services because if there was anything different, he would have reported it back. And I do have a friend who's worked in an STI clinic in Ireland and she also describes it as being quite similar. So I'm not sure about people with a pay-related social insurance or whatever it is, but medicine in Ireland you have to pay for normally. So I'm not sure about refugees and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty unique that they can get services without Medicare. Yeah, it's really great. You mentioned one of the challenges of working in this area is different people's health literacy, as well as maybe access to translated resources. What are some other challenges that you come across? I think there's a lot of misconception about sexual health. So many people think that we're a sex therapy service, for example, but we're not. We don't do that at all. I mean, we try and refer people out for that service. And people may not come to us thinking that what what's there for me or a, a fear. Fear is a big barrier. So they don't want to know they have something. Or we've had like in, in different cultural groups, we've had, it's a very much of a learning experience. So you know how our perception, like I grew up in Ireland, but then I spent a lot of my adult life in Australia. So it's this mixture of the two cultures, but it's still predominantly white and sort of the sort of education and knowledge around sexual health. I would say for me, it was very poor in Ireland because <laughs> I went to a convent. Nuns don't talk about anything. Nobody has sex. So, but I had liberal parents, so that made the difference. And then coming out here, it wasn't much of a culture shock, but I think the culture shock for other people from non-English speaking background is huge. And then for me, I was going to say the learning experience around what to expect with different cultures. I thought, oh yeah, they'll just have a different system and they may not have any services. There might be stigma, but it's much more than that. For example, I learned that Chinese clients very medically focused and we've got a Chinese staff worker who explained this to us that um, when they come in they just want to cure they're not interested in therapy or counseling and they find it a bit challenging yeah there's always the exception but culturally that's sort of the makeup and we, we're hearing it from a person who is from that background so it's not me saying it we're taught by sort of culturally appropriate peers or people who understand their countries and we have a sister clinic in another area in the western suburbs where we get a lot of aboriginal clients but many of them won't like it's very hard to connect with social workers due to the history and that can be a big challenge we're trying we're working on that now but then it's just that misconception of what a social worker is is she going to take away my kids i mean it still persists for me anyway i've found it like i've had there was one lady that I did connect with that came to Parramatta, uh, sorry, came to Mount Druitt and then came to me. And I was like, I was so happy that we connected because it's rare. And I was able to assist her with some housing issues. And it took a while and I met all of her extended family and I felt quite privileged because, I don't know, it was somewhere along the way we found a connection and she was able to then, she was calling me sister, which I understand is a high privilege. <laughs> but it wasn't about that for me. It was more about that I was able to help and she kept coming back because inevitably most of our um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, clients don't come back due to barriers around understanding or assuming that we're not going to help them or whatever it is. So that's really difficult. And I can't believe that in 2020, almost 21, there was still having to make clients from those backgrounds feel safe and they obviously don't feel safe or accepted. We are working hard on that and some of our other clinicians are have projects on the go where we're trying to engage people a bit more and but we, we don't have um, staff that are Aboriginal identified so for example that's a problem because we need it. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, there, there are many boundaries. There's also language boundaries or barriers, even with interpreters, because we're able to access the hospital interpreters. But 
with sexual health, sexual health is a barrier itself. So then if you add language to it, it becomes a whole other ball game. And sometimes they think people who are interpreting might know who they are. So that can be very difficult. And I mean, other STIs are, we use the name HIV, we use the name syphilis, but apparently in some cultures, some words mean the same thing. So a syphilis and HIV might mean the same thing. And then someone thinks they have HIV. It's happened, like with a client where we've said you've got syphilis and they thought they've had HIV and nearly had a breakdown. But it was to do with the terminology of the language. <laughs> so that that's um, things that I've learned along the way. And I, I feel I've been there a long time, but I'm still learning because, well, you can never stop learning, I guess. Well, you're learning externally through university courses, but you're also learning from the people that you work with as well as the people that you're supporting. Yeah, and I mean, they, the knowledge you get from clients is invaluable. I mean, that's really what anecdotally and in supervision and peer groups and that kind of thing, the knowledge from the clients is really useful because that's what allows us to then improve the service make sure that we're meeting the needs so there's a lot of gaps <laughs> i wish there wasn't but yeah it's hard i imagine the health disparities for people who are say gender and sexually diverse or even culturally diverse would be quite apparent to you how do you see that play out yeah so i mean a good example might be people who identify as transgender mm. we are seeing more people who identify as transgender and that's been really rewarding as in they're starting to feel more comfortable and we've had some connections from people in organizations who work with us or next to us and are encouraging people to visit sexual health clinics and become a bit more involved. Now historically outcomes for people who identify as transgender are not great mental health wise but I think it's changing very, very slowly. And if we as a sexual health clinic position ourselves as transgender friendly, which we are, then I'm hoping that that will improve health outcomes for that group of people. It takes a while because they've got to know that the service is welcoming, that there's staff members there that are educated, that we use the right pronouns, that if we don't use them, we're open to that, that we will listen and ask rather than just sit there like idiots and not question and say, what do you want me to call you or what do you prefer? But I have some lovely transgender clients. Again, they're not all Australian. We've got a few from overseas who are refugees or trying to gain refugee status, and that's another challenge in itself. Levels of health literacy in that group can vary a lot. So it really depends because they've got so much to do with otherwise it might get put to the side. And it's only a bit later on as they get into their adulthood and maybe mid-20s that they get a bit more health literacy. And it's not for want of knowing or not being exposed to it, but there's just too much going on with mental health, transitioning, hormones, possibly whatever they're doing, but there's a lot. So it's just one aspect. Sex workers would be sort of similar in health outcomes because sex workers who choose that work and they're very confident and they're just there to earn money. There's other sex workers who have no choice but to work in that and they sometimes unfortunately have bad, they don't have good managers, people who don't treat them well. There's a big mix, but I suppose that within the sex worker group, there's an amount of people who are very vulnerable. And again, sexual health literacy would be very low because they're just trying to survive. They're doing what they're told. They possibly may be from other countries, but they don't speak English at all. They're offered a job. They're going to take a job because they need to survive. I find a lot of students, which I mentioned students earlier, but that's probably a hidden cohort of people who sex work because I think we assume as Australians that they come here because they've got money, but often their parents might send them here to pay for the course, but then they're expected to work. COVID happens or some other thing happens, like some of my clients have got really bad depression and they're unable to work. Suddenly they don't have work. 
like normal mainstream work where they have to be in an office doing admin or whatever it is, or they can't get a job. So they'll turn to sex work just as a means to get by. But they don't understand condom use. They don't know about HIV. They don't know how you get a sexually transmitted infection. They don't know about contraception. We just assume, we being mainstream, would assume that people know this stuff, but they don't. And sometimes their beliefs are quite bizarre. Like, so someone said something to them along the way, or they learned it in their country of origin, or a client, if they're a sex worker, has told them something. Like, I had a client with their customer told them, oh, condoms will give you cancer. And she believed it. Because they didn't want to use condoms. So... (laughs) That's the kind of thing we're trying to contend with then, that someone comes in, oh, but this is what I was told. And the health outcomes could be quite poor if they didn't come into the health clinic. I'm not saying that we're going to change everything, but I'm hoping that we would at least give them basic knowledge, even if they came just once. They will have some understanding that you should use them, trying to drum in, use condoms, if nothing else. Just use them to protect against pregnancy or STIs and both. Yeah, so those people that I've mentioned, they can be students, sex workers, transgender, culturally diverse clients, people from poor socioeconomic backgrounds. We do get people who live on the streets coming into the clinic. They usually come in because they have symptoms. Generally, they probably wouldn't come in unless something physical propels them in. But even then, that snapshot of seeing them, because often people who are homeless won't come back because they're transient and they've moved out of the area. Even that one time seeing them, I'm hoping, makes some impact and might protect them from getting something or falling pregnant or whatever it is, but just allow, allowing them some freedom around their understanding. Yeah. I'm particularly interested, not only because I work in this area, but... Also, there have been some more conversations around NDIS and access to sex work and that sort of thing. Do you see many people who have a disability and require sexual health supports? Yeah, we actually see quite a lot. Um, It would be more intellectual disability, I think, than physical. We've had some physical disability in the clinic, but it's interesting because I wouldn't consider myself to be necessarily skilled enough to work with people living with a disability. However, if you focus in on the sexual health aspect of it, then it doesn't matter. You take away, it doesn't matter. They still have sexual needs. So like anyone, when they come in and they, they're coming in because they might have had sex or they, they want to talk about it, like often clients with a disability, for example, we've had some clients coming in with autism where their carer will come in with them. The carer could be a parent or might be a support worker. And it's actually been great because they've never had sex, but they come in because they want to find out. And it's very refreshing because they don't have the same boundaries as other people do. And my son has got autism, so I can speak from the heart about this so that like there's no qualms. Oh, what do we do here? And what, what do you... What happens? Why is the penis hard? Like there's no there's no um, shyness, really. So sort of in, in one way. Sounds like a perfect client, really. <laughs> yeah, it can be a little bit easier to work with clients um, with a disability. But then there's the challenge of how do I meet people? Um, will, will someone want me? Surprisingly and refreshingly, most of our clients with intellectual disability have no problem getting partners. Surprisingly, not to me, because I've seen many of them now, but I mean, it might be for the general public, it might be surprising to know that. And it's great, because it means I can say to a client who comes in, who's got a disability and has never had a sexual partner, oh, don't worry, you know, I have many of my clients, you know, they feel the same as you, but they've actually successfully met someone. Um, It might take a bit longer, or they might be not through conventional methods. We have seen a couple of people who've, seen sex workers through, I don't know if it was through the NDIS, but they had been to sex workers. I mean, the NDIS, I think with that, it's not that old, like it's not been around that long. And so I haven't actually referred anyone to that service, but that means for me that, and for the social work team that our clients coming through with disabilities have successfully managed to meet someone without having to go to a sex worker. And it's fine if they want to do that, but nobody's 
actually requested that so far. It, it can be harder because there's questions of consent and understanding and informed consent and maybe not quite getting it. You know, they want, they're like anyone else. We all want to be attractive to people and we want to find a partner generally for most people. And most of the clients I see are very aware that they've got a disability. They'll talk about it and say, you know, but people don't understand because I'll say this or they've got to understand that I don't comprehend or whatever it is. And then trying to work that into a healthy sex life can be quite challenging. But I love those clients. They're, they're a breath of fresh air, really. They've just um, got an extra layer of struggle on top of everything else. But they're really good once once they find out that they, it's a safe place and they can come in there and we're not going to judge them. They'll come in and that's what we want. We want everyone, not just people with disability, to feel like they can come back and, you know, get that support. And sometimes it's challenging. It really depends on the person. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, we see quite a few. I mean, we refer people sometimes to family planning because they've got a bit more expertise with regards to people with disability. But... Yeah, we have our fair share, actually. More, more, I would say, now in the last three years or so. I don't know why, particularly. But. Well, I wonder if it's that NDIS thing where there's been a, more of a push towards choice and control and person-centred practice. And that's not new, but there's a bit more of a language around it and perhaps people are asking the question a little bit more. Yeah, possibly, yeah. Hmm. You've already mentioned you would love to be able to set up additional services like, say, an outreach service in your area. But where do you see social work making an impact in this area? What are your hopes for the future of the service? Well, we're really trying to open up our sexual health service so to reach more people who are not necessarily accessing us. And that's by going out to other suburbs within the Western suburbs who are like, for example, Blacktown, trying to draw in clients who don't necessarily, were not even on their radar. Um, Social work, I would see them playing a huge role in that because we've got to provide the psychosocial background to any clients who want an STI test, for example. Apart from the actual community outreach, trying to increase things like peer support groups within the Western suburbs too. Again, that's a bit of an area that's a bit blank. And I mean, obviously COVID's interfered with face-to-face, but I don't think Zoom and telehealth and all that works very well for our people. I really don't know. Not in the Western suburbs. Too much barriers. They either don't have access to internet or they don't have privacy or there's a language barrier. So if someone is speaking... English, but they've got an accent, as you would know, it's, it's even harder on the phone. Like it just sort of becomes magnified and you can't, it's distorted. Yeah. But yeah, social work would really like to increase peer support and around different groups. So, for example, the HIV clients, yes, from all over the world, but uh, Middle Eastern men who identify as MSM or men who have sex with men, transgender. Of that but it's going to take a lot like I mean the resources are limited so trying how to work it so that we can provide those kind of services maybe start them up and then they're they're driven by the people who actually are part of the group I mean that would be the ideal thing but getting to that point and crossing all the walls that we have to get through or over is difficult we're also the social work team are looking at groups of clients who who we consider to be complex who may not have an STI but are very vulnerable and that could be across everyone so the groups that I've mentioned already but they're how do we manage those people do we try and get them to attend more social work sessions or try and I don't know how do we make it more welcoming the clinic's a little bit old-fashioned so we're looking at improving the sort of welcoming aspects of it and we've recently had strategic planning uh, sessions which is looking at next year so moving into a more welcoming space and even if we stay where we are that we actually have flags up and things like that but the social work team are um, have different interests so we're trying to bring them together and then work on little projects within the team but it's all about creating 
client it's client focused i mean in the end our passions with our client focus so it's all about making it more relaxing might not be the, the right word but just more welcoming really and safe and they're not feeling judged yeah that makes sense yeah i know you've worked in this area for many years and you're looking at developing your counseling skills and mental health social work accreditation but are there any other areas of social work that interest you that you'd be keen to try i was looking at eaps employment assistance program like working across there's a lot of employment assistance programs but it's i'm quite interested in providing trauma-based counseling to so so on-site disasters or places where there's been a suicide in the in the company or within families and I was drawn to that but I'm I'm not sure now I'd like I don't know I'd like to have my own practice I think <laughs> so, but I don't know what sort of group because I'd like to diversify I don't know I think I'd like to draw in sexual health mental health all the welfare work I've done as well. I used to work in women's refuges and that kind of stuff. Just draw it all together and then practice myself. Uh, I'm not really sure of the future. I had a few ideas. One of them was EAP, but I thought about women and family health as well or emergency because I work well in crisis. So I was looking at, I think, again, all the skills that I have and that I'm looking at getting would combine quite well in an emergency department but I don't know I'm getting old Yasmin so I gotta don't want to be challenging myself too much I guess it's also different if you've got a young family to think about you can't sort of diversify too much or stretch yourself too thinly no but I want to be the role model as well (laughs) so just Mm -hmm. yeah well my kids aren't young I've got a 16 and 18 year old so one of them's got special needs, which I've mentioned. So that can be the young one. So that, that can be a bit challenging. But I think that's helped my social work. That's another thing. So it's contributed to my understanding of people. Mm-hmm. Are there any areas of social work that have never interested you? Yes. <laughs> uh, aged care and child, like, facts. No way. I couldn't do it. I mean, it's it's too traumatizing. Aged care just doesn't interest me. I, I don't. Or want to work with elderly people. I like working with adult sort of mainstream, but because in the clinic we do see young people, I wasn't sure that I'd like working with teenagers. So I wouldn't pick it, but when they come in, I'm fine with it. It's just, you know, some that one of the social workers loves working with young people and she puts her hand up when they come in, but I'm not that person. I put my hand up when someone comes in who's argumentative at the front desk. That's the person I want to see. I like that. I want to get the connection with them. Working with younger people, it's not your focus, but it's something that you've obviously developed good skills in. Well, I hope so. I mean, I just try and talk with people at their own level and try and connect there. And and I think once you do that, it's then it's easier to start talking about the nitty gritty and intimate things. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Where would you direct people if they were interested in knowing a little bit more about social work in this field? Any good resources or organisations they should check out? Yeah, the, there's some really good websites. I mean, I would encourage any social work student to look at a placement in a sexual health clinic because it will definitely change your life because you're not going to... It just exposes people to a lot of different stories and challenges for people from all over the world that we might not even think about so no matter what you did after that it's going to stand you in good stead but apart from that I would recommend the STIPU website which is the New South Wales uh, Sexually Transmitted Infection Unit and they have a really brilliant resource on them called PlaySafe which is a website sexual health but it's based it's sort of aimed at young people but anyone could look at it it's very factual fun and sort of Mm -hmm. informative plus the actual stipu website itself has loaded resources on different stis and different things about those stis and health resources there's the sexual health info line which also has lots of resources on stis but hiv as well and then 
talks about what to do if you have one, who how, how do you tell partners, that kind of thing. Acon, I would always go back to them. If I'm talking to people about HIV, whether they're newly diagnosed or whether they are worried about getting HIV, there's lots of good resources on there. And they also have the transgender hub that I mentioned. I can't remember the name of it, but it's on there. That's really, really great. Plus other resources around drugs and alcohol and mental health for LGBT. They'd be the main sort of ones I'd look at. I mean, there's lots of different resources, I suppose, for if you're in the field, but if before you even get to the field, that's what I'd be looking at rather than going to the more sort of hardcore stuff. It might be off-putting if you start looking at antibiotics and you know, how you treat things and stuff, but there's lots of stuff, really. Yeah, all the sexual health clinics have their own websites too, and... Outside of New South Wales, Melbourne's Sexual Health Clinic has a really good website. They've either got really good funding or a good designer, but they've set it up really well. But I would say to anyone who wants to get into the field that there's probably not that many jobs in it because there's not that many sexual health clinics. So if you want to do it, your best bet would be to try and get a placement. This job was... Um, advertised when I finished UMI, so I qualified the year before this job was advertised. It was a two-day-a-week job at the time, which fitted in with my childcare because the kids were much younger then. And because I worked in ACON, I already had a flavour like of sort of that, but I wanted to do more than ACON. I wanted, and at, at that time, ACON wasn't as diversified. It was still more focused on HIV, but now it's changed. But yeah, I got into this and never looked back really. Now I'm full time. So it took a while to get from two to five days. But yeah, social work students should give it a go really. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to say before we wrap up about the work that you do? Any final thoughts? No, I think sexual health is something that's still a little bit stigmatized or a lot stigmatized depending on where you come from. So it's a work in progress. I mean, we've got a long way to go before stigma is no longer used in the sense of sexual health and anything to do with sexual health is no different than having a cold or something else like that. And I would love to see that happen because it's a natural part of people's lives. And I think as social workers, we we're trying to work at the very core of someone's being like intimacy is such a big part of people's lives. And yet it's so, through lots of different reasons has become this thing that's not talked about or whispered about. So I'd like that to change. So there's a lot of advocacy to be done around that. But when you're working on the cold face, basically, you don't have much time for the big advocacy. You advocate with the clients, but I suppose all the changes will come through gradually by speaking to people and normalizing it. So I think that's very important for us in sexual health. Sure. I think I always have a perception of health and sexual health as being universal, but there are so many layers to it and so many barriers exist to people accessing supports and that includes cultural influences in accessing support. But you're still, even though you're working in a very defined area, you're still working with other issues like housing and immigration and violence. So sounds like the role has been really good experience to take you to other areas that you might be interested in in future. So you really develop your skills. There's a diversity of the work and exposing you to different challenges, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, no, definitely. So much to think about and learn and, you know, the... There's endless courses. I mean, you're never going to get bored. And <laughs> it's just, mm-hmm. yeah, and because things change all the time and they take a while to filter through as well, there's a lot of finding out. I find there's a lot of detective work going on in the social work role. <laughs> so that, you know, when you're not case managing and you're not counselling, you're not advocating, then you're finding out what's going on elsewhere to try and link up people with the right services and I'm still astounded that sometimes I don't know something's there. And I'm thinking, why don't I know? Like, why have they not contacted us? Because it's constantly changing. Yeah, changing, but also are we still a bit invisible? So I didn't know there was sexual health clinics when I first came to Australia. And I was a young person in my 20s. Like, you know, after I'd been here for a while, I didn't know about them. 
so and they were here back then so that's yeah. interesting because I think it's kind of still the same mm-hmm. it's such a valuable area of social work as well you can really see where it fits and where the importance is but as you said there's not enough funding not enough support it's not visible and hopefully that's something that over time we can change I hope so Thank you so, so much for coming onto the podcast. It's been lovely having the discussion. I had so many things I wanted to chat with you about and I'm glad that I had the opportunity and I think a lot of other people can learn from this as well. Thanks, Yasmin. Thanks for giving me the opportunity as well. Thanks for joining me this week. If you would like to continue this discussion or ask anything of either myself or Lara, please visit my Anchor page at anchor.fm slash socialworkspotlight. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or you can email swspotlightpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Please also let me know if there is a particular topic you'd like discussed or if you or another person you know would like to be featured on the show. My next episode is going to be a first time for the podcast. I've invited two guests, Belinda and Rabina, to speak with me about their work in the disability and sexual violence team at the New South Wales Health Education Centre Against Violence. This portfolio funding has come out of the Royal Commission into responses to abuse in institutionalised settings to improve responses to people with disability who have experienced sexual violence, as well as for children and young people who are using problematic and harmful sexualised behaviour. They have both had incredible careers demonstrating an ongoing commitment to furthering an intersectional understanding of structural and interpersonal forms of violence and inequalities while trying to cultivate reflective, trauma-informed and socially just responses in direct practice and advocacy. They believe providing education and training is a crucial part of social work practice, as well as social work clinicians being involved in lobbying for structural change. I release a new episode every two weeks, Please subscribe to my podcast so you are notified when this next episode is available. See you next time.